Nixon Guild Law presents Legally Femtech, hosted by Bethany Corbin. Bethany is a healthcare innovation attorney who works with new and innovative health tech companies that are revolutionizing women's healthcare and improving women's lives. In this podcast, Bethany discusses the practical, legal, and ethical aspects of femtech with the industry's most important voices. This podcast is not intended as legal advice and is not an endorsement of any product or company. Now, here's your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Legally Femtech. This week, I want to shift our focus to femtech and privacy and security. The landscape of reproductive rights in the U.S. might be on the precipice of change, and consumers have now become increasingly concerned that their femtech applications and products may be compromising their privacy and security. So I want to talk first about the potential for the change in the landscape for abortion rights in the U.S., and then I want to address why consumers are worried about data privacy and security now given that leaked majority opinion. And then finally, I want to discuss some of the privacy and security tactics and strategies that femtech companies and founders can start implementing to reassure consumers that their reproductive health data is secure and protected. So since 1973, in the U.S., the landmark decision of Roe versus Wade has protected a woman's constitutional right to abortion. But given the fact that there was a leaked majority opinion uh, to Politico earlier this month, it now appears that the U.S. Supreme Court may be poised to strike down the federal protection that was granted in Roe versus Wade. In that draft opinion, Justice Samuel Alito argued that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start and must be overruled. Justice Alito's rationale was that the right to abortion lacked explicit and implicit protection in the U.S. Constitution, and it also failed to qualify as a deeply rooted right in U.S. history. So because of that, the draft opinion suggests that the the decision on abortion really should be returned to the people's elected representatives, which means the state's. If the final decision that comes out this summer does mirror the leaked draft opinion, then this ruling will result in an immediate end to federal protection of abortion rights, and it will also result in the activation of trigger laws in at least 13 states that will have the effect of immediately banning or criminalizing abortion in those jurisdictions. So because of this, The femtech industry has been rapidly working to try to understand and analyze the implications to women if Roe versus Wade falls. And in addition to compiling resources about where and how to obtain legal abortions in a post-Roe era, I've seen femtech and women's rights companies starting to find ways to provide low-cost or free access to birth control and emergency contraception nationwide. And then there's also some femtech companies and women's rights organizations who are really lobbying for federal codification of the rights that were expressed in Roe versus Wade. However, if we look at what consumers and, you know, users of femtech products are really worried about at this particular moment, um, it's actually something different. It's their privacy and their security of their data that they are inputting into femtech applications. So, Really, what's happening here, right, is that 
there have been numerous articles that have been published since the opinion leak that are calling for women to delete their period tracking apps and to remove their sensitive health data from menstrual and fertility applications. And the concern really is that this sensitive data that they're inputting into the femtech apps could make its way into the hands of law enforcement and could be used to help prosecute an illegal abortion if Roe is to fall. And so because of that, consumer trust in the femtech industry is really uncertain at best at this point in time. And I would expect femtech companies to start to see increased consumer and media scrutiny into their privacy policies and their security practices. Now, why are consumers worried about data privacy and security now? Well, following the leaked Supreme Court opinion, consumers have started to become increasingly aware of the lack of federal privacy and security protections for data that is collected by femtech applications in the United States. Currently, most femtech companies in the U.S. do not have significant restrictions on how they can collect or use, store, or disclose health data. And this is true because the majority of femtech companies, particularly when we're talking about startups, are not subject to the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, known as HIPAA, which is the primary federal law that regulates healthcare privacy in the United States. And as a result, data disclosure from most of these femtech companies is really being restricted only by the Federal Trade Commission, which prohibits companies from committing unfair or deceptive acts or practices and applicable state laws. So with the potential reversal of Roe, consumers are starting to fear that femtech companies' data privacy and security practices could result in the disclosure of their reproductive data to law enforcement or the general public and could then be used to either investigate or criminally prosecute women who have had those illegal abortions. This raises the question, right, are, uh, are the fears that consumers have right now founded? And they are. Um, there are at least four ways in which a woman's reproductive health data could make its way to law enforcement. So first, data can be obtained directly from a woman's digital device and the applications that she has on it. There is a lot of data out there right now showing that law enforcement officers regularly request and obtain digitally held data about suspected criminals. Um, in 2017, for example, Mississippi actually charged a woman with second-degree murder for the death of her fetus. And as part of that case, prosecutors reviewed her cell phone data, and they found internet searches related to the purchase of abortion pills. So that data and those internet searches were then used to help prove that she had an intent to receive an abortion. So this means that data that's contained on a device or any of its applications or data that's stored in the cloud can be accessible to law enforcement officers. The second way that data can make its way to law enforcement is through downstream third parties who've ob obtained that data either directly from the femtech company or through a data broker. So a data broker is an individual or an entity that is collecting personal data either from public or private sources, and then sells or licenses that data to third parties. In their privacy policies, a lot of femtech companies right now are noting that personal data may be sold downstream, and that can ins include that sale to data brokers. And 
This is often a way for femtech companies to try to capitalize on the high value of health data and sale of data to data brokers can sometimes result in a pretty steady income stream, especially for the free femtech applications that exist on the market. Unfortunately, this data, really regardless of whether it's anonymized, can sometimes be traced back to an individual consumer who is identifiable. So if femtech companies are selling that reproductive health data downstream, purchasers of that data could be able to identify consumers who have obtained abortions or who have traveled to get reproductive services. And that could be used again to prosecute those consumers if Roe versus Wade is to fall. Now, you might be wondering, right, whether that threat is purely theoretical. It's actually not. So the publication Vice recently reported that data broker SafeGraph sold data related to abortion clinic visits. So for a relatively small fee, purchasers of that data could obtain data points that included how long a person stayed at an abortion clinic and where that person traveled to or from, and that can result in consumer identification. So given that these data brokers are selling reproductive data to both the public and to the private actors, um, law enforcement officers can come and purchase this data from third-party brokers. And they can get data from third-party brokers that they otherwise would not be able to access without a subpoena. And that then allows them to trace abortion-related data points back to identifiable individuals. The third way that data can make its way into the hands of law enforcement um, is if law enforcement officers try to directly obtain that data from a femtech company through subpoenas. So privacy policies for femtech companies will often permit data disclosure to law enforcement officers for legitimate purposes and in response to subpoenas or other legal requests. So there's a chance, right, if you as a femtech founder or company are served with a subpoena, that you may decide to disclose that reproductive health data. And if your privacy policy allows you to do that in response to a legal investigation or subpoena, you're within your rights to then disclose that data. And then finally, reproductive health data can be stolen through a breach or a cyber attack and could be disclosed potentially to law enforcement officers by a cyber criminal. So if we have this abortion landscape shift this summer, the value of reproductive data on the black, on the black market and the black web will likely significantly increase. Uh, right now, one healthcare record is worth about $250 on the black market. And that's because of the immense amount of data that it contains. And because once a hacker gets that health data, they have a lot of information about you that they can then use to commit identity theft and other types of cyber crimes. The other problem with health data, right, is that you can't change it, right? That's your health data. Um, unlike a credit card, right, which you could go and change that credit card number, your health data isn't something that you can go and change. So healthcare records right now in general are worth about $250 on the black market, and that's compared to about $5.40 for financial credit card data. Now, if we add in this change in abortion landscape, reproductive health data is likely going to be much more valuable because of the downstream consequences that a breach or a leak of that data could produce. So hackers who gain entry into and can compromise femtech applications or devices could steal that woman's health data, 
And if those stolen files contain any data points that are related to abortion services, hackers could then try to blackmail or extort companies and the women whose data they process. So what that means, right, is that the hacker is going to threaten and hold for ransom the data. Um, They're going to, you know, probably demand a large sum of money from the femtech company because the femtech company is not going to want the publicity that comes with the fact that they have had a breach regarding very sensitive reproductive health data. And then to the extent that the hacker is able to re-identify any of the individuals within that data, the hacker could go to those individuals and extort from them additional money to not leak their data to law enforcement. So as a result, right, consumers might be faced with the threat of public disclosure to authorities that could lead to criminal charges. And in addition, right, that mere threat of public exposure for obtaining an abortion even in states where abortion is legal, that can cause women significant distress because abortion is oftentimes seen as a very personal and private matter. So for these reasons, consumers are pretty concerned that their health data may not be adequately protected by femtech companies. And some consumers have already stopped using femtech applications altogether and tried to delete their data. So as the femtech industry what can we be doing to try to reassure consumers that their data is safe? Because here's the catch-22. If consumers do not feel that their data is adequately protected in the femtech applications, they're not going to use the femtech applications. Um, And then that is going to create more harm to women's health long-term, right? Because we already have exclusion of women from clinical trials until the 1990s. And so femtech right now is really helping to build back into the modern healthcare system, all of that data about women's health. So if consumers aren't using these femtech apps that could potentially provide them with significant insights into their bodies or, you know, life-saving treatments down the road, we're harming women's health because we're not protecting women's privacy and security now. So there are actionable steps that femtech companies can be taking right now to address consumers' concerns with data privacy and security. So I've got a couple of tips here that I want to share. The first is map your company's data flow and only collect the minimum necessary data. So you should have an in-depth and detailed understanding of your company's data flow and life cycle. Because as a femtech company and founder, you cannot protect data if you don't know what data you're collecting and where that data is being stored. So mapping the data flow here can really be particularly useful for identifying all of the different places where data is inputted, created, and stored, and identifying who has access to that data and which data collection entry points might introduce security vulnerabilities. Now, once you understand your company's data flow, you then need to identify precisely what data is actually necessary for your application to function properly. So a lot of femtech applications right now are collecting substantially more data than what is necessary for their application to work. And if a company is collecting and storing this excessive data, that means that they are unnecessarily exposing that extra data to privacy and security risks that are just unnecessary. So if your company is collecting more data, try to think about where 
the unnecessary data entry points are and what you can remove from the data collection process. Um, you could also here, right, only collect the minimum necessary data from consumers. That should be the end goal. So taking time to really compare the data that's requested within your application's functionality and, you know, kind of what the minimum necessary principles are, that can help you determine whether any of your data categories can be removed. Second, to the extent that you can, try to limit the sale of reproductive health data. So femtech companies should start out by determining their position on the sale of reproductive data. Whenever it's possible, the sale of that really sensitive reproductive data should be entirely avoided or substantially limited to try to enhance consumer privacy and trust. Now, selling health data might be necessary for some business models, and I understand that, right? In those cases, consumers should have the ability to then opt in to the sale of their data rather than the traditional opt-out methodology. And that means, right, that consumers have more control over whether they're going to allow the company to sell their data downstream. You should also consider changing the nature and the structure of user consents and permissions that so that, you know, you can promote affirmative and informed consent for all consumers so that they know exactly what data might be disclosed downstream or when their data might be available to law enforcement officers. Policies and procedures here that are providing consumers with more control over the sharing and the disclosure of their data are going to be significantly appreciated by consumers in this uncertain climate. The third actionable step that you can take right now is to review and update your privacy policies. So it is essential that your privacy policy is accurately and transparently communicating to consumers how and for what purposes your company is going to use and disclose their personal data. So remember, your privacy policy, right, is your externally facing document to consumers. And it's in essence a promise to consumer and users of your product or your application about how you're going to treat and handle their data. Privacy policies that are inaccurate or misleading could be deemed to be unfair or deceptive trade practices and could expose femtech companies to investigation by the Federal Trade Commission. So it's important to remember here Right, that your privacy policy is a living, breathing document. It should be regularly reviewed and updated to ensure that the external promises that you're making actually match your company's business model and your real-time data collection practices. Now, having accurate and complete privacy policies also serves as a risk mitigation function for your company. Right? If reproductive data is disclosed downstream in violation of a privacy policy, or in a manner that was not actually disclosed in that privacy policy, your company could then face investigations and lawsuits, not only from the FTC, but also from state attorneys general and consumers. So if consumers can show harm, for example, that your sale of their reproductive data downstream resulted in a criminal action against a woman, um, your company's liability and your exposure is going to significantly increase, not to mention the damage that's going to occur to your company's reputation. So for these reasons, it is essential to have an appropriately tailored privacy policy for your platform. 
A lot of early stage femtech startups like to copy and paste a competitor's privacy policy because they don't have the resources to hire a lawyer to create their privacy policy or they aren't sure how to do it. That is extremely risky. And the reason is, even if your competitor has a very similar product, right, they are likely collecting and storing and using and disclosing data differently than how you are doing it. So if you're making changes, um, you know, to an existing privacy policy here to enhance consumer protections, it's important that you make sure that all of, you know, your data disclosures are accurate. If you are starting from scratch on your privacy policy, it's important to get it right and be transparent and honest about how you are collecting and using consumer data. And if you're making changes to enhance consumer protection, highlight those changes for consumers so that they know that you're taking their concerns seriously. And then finally, if the abortion landscape changes in the U.S., as I mentioned, cyber criminals are going to have increased incentives to target reproductive health data. So what needs to happen here is that femtech companies need to be increasing their security protections now to prevent against cybersecurity attacks. And there are a couple of ways that this can happen, right? And first, Right now, a lot of femtech companies, um, especially startups, don't have the funds or the resources to invest in and prioritize cybersecurity. A lot of the initial funding that femtech founders get is really being used and dedicated to product design and development and commercialization. And so a lot of founders believe that there's a low risk of a cyber attack or breach right now because their company is new and small and relatively unknown. The problem is, right, if the value of reproductive health data increases, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, those femtech companies collecting reproductive health data become a very valuable target for cyber criminals. The fact that you're small doesn't mean that a cyber criminal is going to ignore you. In fact, some cyber criminals will go after smaller companies because they think that those companies are going to be easier to hack. They're kind of the low-hanging fruit. They know that they're not going to have the more enhanced cybersecurity protections. And then also, if your femtech application connects to another healthcare system um, or another application, hackers could use your application as an entry point to gain access into you know, larger healthcare systems and other applications. So it's very important to start to think about cybersecurity and to the extent possible, begin enhancing your cybersecurity protections. You should implement data access controls, right, that limit which employees of your organization can have full access to health data, right? Access should be determined based on position and need, and this can minimize and reduce the number of access points for data to leave the confines of your company's network. Also, um, you should vet and audit any vendors that you're using because data access and control really goes beyond your organization and it extends to any entity that stores or accesses or uses your company's data. If your third-party vendor has lax security policies and procedures, that can actually serve as a hacking stepping stone for entry into your health IT system. So be diligent about vetting and auditing your vendors on a routine basis and ensure that your vendor contracts grant you audit rights. Third, consider purchasing cyber insurance, right? Cyber insurance is a must-have for any femtech company that's collecting or storing sensitive health data. 
And this cyber policy should be separate from your general liability policy and provide you with sufficient minimum coverage for the types of services that your company provides. And then finally, you should begin to develop and test a cyber incident response plan. Because cyber attacks have become a very routine occurrence in the digital health space, response times actually matter. Um, for that reason, right, it's necessary to create and to test a cyber incident response plan. And these can give you the tools to really evaluate, stop, and recover from cyber incidents. So I know the next few months will be filled with uncertainty as we're waiting to receive the final Supreme Court decision. Regardless of the outcome, though, femtech companies should prioritize and emphasize consumer privacy and security, just given the fact that there is very sensitive health data that's being collected through these applications. There are a lot more steps, um, strategies, etc., that femtech companies and founders can undertake to enhance and really promote consumer privacy and security. If you're interested in learning more, I am happy to talk to you about that. Um, there's a lot that we can be doing to really strengthening our privacy and security frameworks here. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will tune into the next episode. Thanks for listening to Legally Femtech with Bethany Corbin. To connect with Bethany, follow Femtech Lawyer on Twitter and Instagram. Visit her website at femtechlawyer.com and connect with her on LinkedIn. If you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time.